0: And invite you to be among us. We know you're everywhere, but we want you to be among us in fellowship with us. We want you to be here and speak to us through your word. Lord, we want to grow in the likeness of your son. Father, we want to learn better today how to confess our sin. Lord, we realize we get dirty in this world. We realize that we are Still sinners, though we are saved by grace and eternally secure, but Father, we need this spiritual discipline, this art, this skill, this ability to stay clean and in close fellowship with you, and so I pray that you would just work on our hearts right now. Let's set aside those cares, those burdens, roll them off on you, realizing that you care for us, and just be joyful in your spirit, and excited about what you have for us. Lord, we're so thankful for all that you have for us in Jesus. It's all in Jesus. It's for Him. It's from Him. It's through Him, and it's to Him. It's to Him that we owe everything. We owe our allegiance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to uh, 1 John, 1 John 1, 9 we We've been talking about recovering the lost art of receiving forgiveness. And the key to that is this. You can't be what you haven't received. You can't give what you haven't received. So it's very important that we're laying this foundation of how to receive forgiveness. God's forgiveness. And so for two weeks, we've cleared up confusion about confession. It's kind of ironic, and it kind of is unsettling when you realize there's some people, some believers, some, some Christians that would say, you don't need to confess sin. That's all forgiven. And I hope the four facts that you have there that we talked about have convinced you and shown you that there are two kinds of forgiveness. There's that eternal forgiveness that allows us to enter into a family relationship, but there's also that parental forgiveness, which allows us to enjoy the fellowship and let it be restored after we sin. And so what I want to do today is look at how to actually confess sin. Again, I think there's confusion about this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at four different word pictures because the Bible is so rich, in how it teaches us this concept. We're going to look at the courtroom of a judge. We're going to look at the palace slash temple of a king. We're going to look at an upper room dinner party. And then we're going to go to that most intimate of relationships right in the home between a father and a son. And it's all going to teach us this, how to receive forgiveness after forgiveness. How to receive forgiveness after forgiveness. So the first place we want to go or enter into is the courtroom of a judge. And it's right there where we see point number one, John the Apostle taught, John the Apostle taught the condition of forgiveness to his disciples in 1 John 1 9. And so we've seen that passage for the last two weeks. So just look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, there's the condition. He's teaching his His disciples, which He belovedly calls His children, He teaches them that the condition for forgiveness of sins as forgiven believers, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we want to take that phrase, if we confess our sins. I would venture if we ask, hey, what do you think that means? There'd probably be a whole group of us with all sorts of different ideas of what we do. And maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you're in the habit of doing it a certain way. Well, I hope we'll all learn something about actually how to do it. Here's the basic idea of that word confess. The word confess, the basic idea is acknowledging your agreement with someone about something. It's acknowledging that I agree with you. With someone about something. And the someone we're agreeing with is who? God. And the something we're agreeing about is what? Sin. And so the biblical idea of confession in that verse is this. Acknowledging your agreement with God about your sin. That's confession. Agreeing acknowledging your agreement with God about your sin. And so it's basically saying this, Heavenly Father, I've sinned against you and I've wronged you by and then naming your sin. I've done this. Therefore, I owe you and I'm indebted to you. And I'm building off the previous lessons where we talked about that forgiveness is the cancellation of a debt that we owe someone. And so basically we're saying, God, I'm in your debt because here's what I did. And basically confession is coming to God so that he can shine the light of his righteousness and holiness on our sin. It's coming to the light. And in first or actually in John chapter three, 20 through 21, in Ephesians chapter five, verses 11 through 13, Paul, Jesus, they teach us The mark of a believer the mark of a believer is that we run to the light so that our sin can be exposed and so that God can do the work only he can do. So, you say, well, okay, that's pretty easy. I acknowledge my sin and I just agree with God. But I want to break that down further into five aspects. There's five aspects to confession because I, I just—it's it's just... It's like looking at a diamond with all these facets. And each time you turn it, you see something a little different. And I think by breaking it down this way, I'm not saying these are like rigid steps. I must do this, and then I must do that. No. When we really are broken about our sin, all five aspects are present. All right? And it can be present like, boom, I'm convicted and I'm broken. Or it can happen over months and even a year, like King David. It took a year for these five aspects to enter into his life before he really confessed his sin before God. So let's look at it. Five aspects aspects to confession. First of all, agreeing with God. Agreeing with God about your sin as you see it in light of His character. As you see it from his perspective, and as you see it according to His standard. I really think this aspect of confession is the hardest one. This is what it requires the divine working of the Holy Spirit to convict us from within. It requires the preaching and teaching of God's Word to convict us by His Word. It requires the fellowship of believers to say, Hey, I'm seeing something in your life. It's agreeing with God about your sin. Because you see it in light of His character. You see, what's the standard that all sin is measured by? Romans 3.23, what is it? For all, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's seeing my sin not because my mom or my dad said it was sin, not because uh, our my pastor or our church says it's a sin. I'm seeing it because I see God's glory and all of a sudden... Things that I didn't think sin, suddenly I see as what? Sin. And maybe some things that I thought was sin, suddenly I see as not sin because I see them that the standard is God's glory, not not maybe man-made rules. You see, God's law is the target. And if we break one law, we have sinned, And so God's law, so that's why sin is called missing the mark. You see, this aspect of confession reminds us that God is the judge, God is the lawgiver, and God is the law himself. And he determines what is sin, he determines when I've sinned, he determines if I've sinned, and he determines what I should do about my sin. So the first step is seeing it. And it's basically saying this, you are God when it comes to sin and I'm not. That's the idea. You are God when it comes to my sin and I'm not. Second second aspect is this. Admitting that you've sinned in a specific way. Once you've agreed with God and seen it from His perspective, then the next step is logical. Admitting that you've sinned in a specific way. And what are some ways we sin? Well, sin is thoughts that no one hears. Right? Sin can be feelings. You ever felt jealous, envious, hateful? And sin, of course, are actions. But we sometimes think actions as only sins of commission. Commission meaning I don't do I I, I do what I shouldn't do. I know I shouldn't do this, but I do it anyway. Sins of commission. But what we overlook often, well. Yeah, just, you you know how to spell it. (laughs) Sins of omission. Sins of omission is what we often overlook. And what are sins of omission? Yes, what we should do, but we don't do. And that's the one I think we overlook the most. All right? So there you go. And basically admitting that you have sinned in a specific way, covers these types of areas, and then names it. What is that thought? What are those feelings? What is that action? Naming, and it's basically saying this to God. You're right about this sin, and I'm wrong, and I was wrong to fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. Third aspect, accepting responsibility accepting responsibility. So first we agree that what I did was sin and then we admit then we admit that we did it and then we accept responsibility. because you realize you could agree, you can do these first two without accepting responsibility. You do realize that, right? See, do you see how these aspects are interrelated? So you can cut this off at any place. Okay yeah God, that's sin but it wasn't my fault. It was, you know, blame shifting, right? Or you can say, yeah, I did it, but my circumstances. See, you're not accepting responsibility for your sin before God first and foremost. This is why later when we read uh, Psalm 32, David says, against you and you only have I sinned. And yet this, I mean, that's one of the most ironic Uh, verses in the Bible, he had murdered someone, he had had someone murdered, and he had committed adultery, probably out of pressure due to his position, and yet he says, against you and against you only, because until you see the offense against God, you haven't seen it. And so basically, this aspect of accepting responsibility comes down to this. I am guilty before you, God. And I am the one to blame no one else. I am guilty and I am blame worthy. The sin is mine. And so the guilt and the blame is mine. And I have to answer to you for this. That's the idea. So here's, here's kind of what, what we, we should say in our heart. I will seek to forsake this. I will seek to restore. I will seek to repay. I will seek to replace With what you require and desire. In other words, I accept full responsibility, not only for what I did, but repairing what I broke, restoring what I took. And sometimes that's not possible, but it's an attitude of, I wish I could. And if I can, I'll do everything possible to do that. That leads then, now you're ready for the fourth aspect that we typically think of, and that's asking. Now you're ready... For the asking aspect. So you see, when you think about confession, a lot of people just think of this idea, or maybe this idea, or they just come down and do the asking of forgiveness. But it's all of this agreeing, admitting, accepting, and then asking. Asking for forgiveness and restored fellowship. So here's, as forgiven believers, here's how we ask for forgiveness. Lord, forgive me according to your promises. That are grounded in your character. 1 John 1.9. That promise. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just. To forgive us our sins. He's faithful and just. The promise is grounded in his character. Lord forgive me according to your provision. That's guaranteed in Christ. He's my advocate. He's my atonement. I ask not because I deserve it. I ask because of what you've done for me in Christ. Lord forgive me according to your power of your spirit. Your spirit that you gave dwells in me and he's holy and he can cleanse and he can and and, and he convicts but he cleanses as well so here's the idea i'm asking you to forgive me for fill in the blank and restore to me the joy of my salvation not restore to me my salvation you don't lose your salvation but what you lose is what The joy of it, the joy of it, and restore the fellowship that I had with you. Again, you're not asking for a restoration of a relationship. It's the fellowship that was lost. Now, here's the aspect that only believers can do, and that is the affirming aspect. The affirming aspect. In other words, when you ask God's forgiveness, you don't have to wait for it as a believer. You don't have to say, well... Maybe he'll write it in the sky. Maybe somebody, you know, will come along and tell me that God has forgiven me. No, affirming that God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us. You just simply say, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me in Christ and for restoring the joy of my salvation and my fellowship with you and others. Now, give me the grace to face the consequences Or any permanent fallout of my sin. This is a wonderful. This is a joyful. This is what enables you to move on. Without regret. Without letting your past. Hinder you from serving the Lord in the future. Because you say, Lord, I know on the basis of your promises, your provision, and the presence and power of your spirit, I am forgiven. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? That's just good stuff. Now, these five aspects of agree, admit, accept, ask, and affirm are great. But what does it really look like in life? Number two, David, the forgiven sinner, modeled the joy of this confession. He modeled all five of these aspects in Psalms 32 and 51. Now, here's the relationship of Psalm uh, 51 and 32. Psalm 51 is before he confessed, and he's convicted of his sin, and Psalm 32 is the joy. So, Psalm 51 is more up here, I'm sorry, that's the abbreviation for Psalm, and this is Psalm 32. And if you read, and we, we, we're not studying those psalms today, but if you read those psalms, he takes you all five of these aspects. And hey, you know what? That outline's not inspired. You might find a few aspects that I didn't cover. Just make sure they begin with A, Jim, okay? And then you're okay. But all I'm saying to you is you're going to see those ideas, all right? So let's look at Psalm 32 just to flesh this out because, you know, these aren't just words on a page, This is real life stuff that gets lived out in real life, having committed real sin. All right. So let's look at Psalm 32. He starts off. It's evident that he's in the affirming stage. Look at verse 1. How blessed, joyful, happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed, happy, joyful is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity it doesn't count his sin against his record and whose spirit there is no deceit see the beauty of confession is that you've come clean before god isn't that a beautiful thing there's nothing weightier there's nothing more burdensome than guilt in the presence of god three he tells it what what it's like in psalm 51 this is he says when i kept silent about my sin my body wasted away through my groaning all day long For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My vitality, my life was drained away as with the fever of the heat of summer. Selah, pause and reflect on the burden of unconfessed sin in the life of a believer. And then he says, verse 5, now he begins the process. I acknowledge my sin to you and I acknowledge my iniquity. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah, pause, reflect on the joy of confessed sin that's been forgiven by God. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Selah means. No one really knows, but it works for me. Every time I use it to pause and reflect, it's always at a critical time. Then he says, verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in time when you may be found. See, here's the interesting thing. Here's a believer telling other godly believers that they need to pray like this when they've sinned. So those folks that say believers don't have to confess sin, you know, just because we're in the Old Testament doesn't mean these aren't biblical timeless principles. Right? Unless we have a whole different category of salvation in the Old Testament. Well, we could go on. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. So, we've been in the courtroom where we acknowledge and affirm, because basically all these words are really legal words that when you're in a courtroom, for instance, in a court of law, you can agree to something without admitting guilt. You can In a courtroom, it, words are important. Just ask a lawyer. So these are this is kind of where you're saying, "Hey, there's no wiggle worm. I have done it and I own it." Okay? Now we've gone to the palace of a king and the most powerful man who was one of who was God's ruling mediator and though he sinned, he had to come before God just like everybody else. Now, let's move to the upper room where there's a dinner party and point number 3, Jesus the master demonstrated, Jesus the Master, demonstrated the necessity of frequent confession, forgiveness, and cleansing to his disciples in John 13. So turn your Bibles to John 13. Now remember, the apostle that wrote the Gospel of John is the same guy that wrote the epistle that we've been looking at. There's a reason why he understood forgiveness. Because he had learned it. He had watched it demonstrated by Jesus. Now, let me just tell you this about John 13, which, when I learned this, it just revolutionized my understanding of this chapter. Because typically, John 13, we think it's all about what? What? What, what, Washing feet, right? It's about washing feet. But underneath that, And through that, Jesus is teaching, if you read the chapter, he's teaching three things for God's people. Love one another. The chapter begins about love. This is all a demonstration of love. Loving one another. He talks about serving one another. That's what the feet washing is all about. It's about serving. And the third thing that often gets overlooked, it's about forgiving one another. And that's where we want to look. So let's look at verses 3 through 11. So, Are you with me? You got your Bibles turned on, opened up, whatever you're doing with your Bible? Let's look at verse 3. John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come forth from God, and he was going back to God. In other words, Jesus knew who he was, where he came from, why he was here, and where he was going, which enabled him to humble himself and be seen as less than he really was the biggest hindrance to us serving others is we don't want to be seen as less than we think we are. But when your identity is secure in Christ, people can mistake you and you're okay because God knows who I am. All right, so he does that. And he got up from the supper and he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. So he, he took the lowest position. He dressed the part, he acted the part, he was the part of a servant. Then he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel which was girded, with which he was girded. He's down there right in their stinky feet. He's right down there, and he's washing it with the towel that's wrapped around him. He's doing what should have already been done. They're already sitting at the table. You were supposed to get your feet washed. Why? Because it was table fellowship, not like these circular tables, but you were sitting next to one another. So Jemima, your feet right there in Carmen's face. Not a happy sight, right? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe you have beautiful feet. I don't know. I do. You do? Okay. (laughs) You're a confident lady. You see what's happening? This should have already been done. But they were too proud to do it. And so Jesus begins to do this. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said, and, and Peter says to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? As though he was like, had it all, you know, if Peter really understood what was going on, Peter would already be washing everybody's feet, right? This is false humility. Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, "Uh, nothing like correcting the master, okay? You've already stuck your foot in the mouth. He tries to warn you and you proceed and say, Well, there's room for one more foot. I'll stick the, you know, I'll stick another one in there. Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. How important? Whatever he's doing, how important is it? It's very important. It's very important. So, Simon, being the erratic, overreactor says to him well hey if that's the case lord not my feet only but my hands and my head wash it all so do you see the extreme swing what was his first reaction never don't touch me you'll never wash anything of me and now what's his reaction what's he want washed now do it do it all lord little shampoo little back scrub do the whole thing right And Jesus said to him, Peter, you blew it again. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Because who was still at the table? Who was still in the room? Judas. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Now with that address of of Judas... And what he has said to Peter, it becomes very clear what this is really referring to. It's referring to salvation and forgiveness after salvation. There's two words for wash in this passage. Do you see verse 10? Verse 10, the word is bathed. And in the original, that is in the perfect tense. And why is that important? Because it's an act that was done in the past that has ongoing results into the future. So in other words, when Jesus gives you a bath, this would be glorious for kids. Wouldn't this be great, moms, Dana? Wouldn't this be wonderful? Bathe them once, and it's done forever. Wouldn't that be great? Great. That's the idea. The idea is you have been bathed and you are still clean because of that bathing. The second word in this passage is the word that's translated wash. But it's always in the present tense or the aorist tense. You say, what's the significance of that? It means you need to be continually washed. Acts of washing that are ongoing. Now, Let's keep on, let's go on, keep moving. Two extremes to avoid in this passage. Well, let me say this. We're going to hit it again. The idea of being bathed is being justified and declared righteous and totally forgiven. Judas was not saved, the rest were. They all had a bath by a, a gospel bathing. Judas had not. But even though they were saved, they still needed their feet washed. And that is ongoing cleansing and confession of sin. So we see in this passage, thanks to Peter, see that we learn the most because Peter's on the, on the, in, in, in the house. Two extremes to avoid. First of all, thinking you're too good to never confess your sins. You want to avoid the extreme of thinking you're too good. Look at verse 8. What's the word that he uses in verse 8? Look in your Bibles. What's the word he used? Never. Never. That is pure pride. Now, he doesn't know what he's saying, but it's pride. He's saying, look, we don't want to be too proud to say, look, I just, I'm too proud to confess my sin. I don't want you to wash my feet. And there's a variety of reasons why that. Maybe we've been taught that Christians can be sinless. Wrong. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Yeah, but Lord, my feet aren't that dirty. Who tells us when our feet are dirty? Yeah, but they're not that dirty. Lord. No, who tells us when our feet need washing? Jesus. Yeah, but I'm one of the apostles. I'm a pastor. I'm a Sunday school teacher. I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm justified. God's declared me right. He's already forgiven that. No, don't be too proud to confess your sin. Second, thinking you're so bad, you need to be saved again. Thinking you're so bad. This is where then Peter went to. Oh, if washing's important, give me a bath. And Jesus said, no. If you've been bathed, you're still bathed. If you've been cleansed, you're still clean. But that part of your body in that culture that walks through the day, that walks through the day and can't help but get dirty in those open-toed sandals, that part that then comes into fellowship with others and your feet, your stinky, dirty feet are in, in their face, that part I need to wash on a regular basis. You see, sometimes we can have a false humility that's too proud To receive forgiveness. See, maybe a lot of this stuff that we're teaching this morning, you have bought into, you believe, and you believe it so deeply that you have a hard time affirming that I've been forgiven. I've asked for it. He's heard me. It's been accomplished. I'm forgiven. So those are the two extremes. Sadly, there are denominations that teach that if you sin, you lose your salvation. So the only way to get forgiven is what do you need to do? you got to get saved again. And, hey, Baptists have their own version of this. It's called recommitment, right? Rededication. You know, I, I, I love certain... And listen, we all have our journey, so I'm not putting this down. But, you know, it's, you know sometimes I'll ask people, well, when did you get saved? You say, well, the first time. And then the second time was, first time as a child, VBS. Second time as a young adult at youth camp. And this third time, okay. And, and so the idea is we need to sort these things out. So let me give you three principles based on what we've just read in John 13. Here's the three principles. First of all, salvation from our sin happens once and for all. And all our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven and washed by the blood. That's verse 10. That's being bathed. That is eternal forgiveness for an eternal relationship. Jesus said, verse 10, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Number two confessions of sin is repeated frequently and i would put forth to you at least daily why because jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread and father forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors so at at a minimum daily to receive forgiveness and cleansing whenever and wherever needed. This is the issue of washing feet, that part of the body that needed frequent washing to stay in fellowship. Feet were near faces while eating together. So here's the idea. Here's verse 10, verses 9 and 10. He says, no, don't wash only my feet, wash my hands and feet. And Jesus said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. So you're not asking to be saved again. You're asking for specific sins that have made your heart dirty and broken fellowship either with God or with others, all right? And then number three, confession of sins is never, ever the basis of our salvation in the Son or acceptance by the Father. Please understand, we don't do daily confession of sin in order to earn the Father's acceptance or to deserve what Christ has done for us. I like this because he says, verse 10, look again at verse 10. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Now, turn over to John 15, 3. Turn over to John 15, 3, because Jesus, again, used the same word for clean, cleansing in John 15, 3. And look at what he says. John 15, 3. You are already clean. Why? What's, what's verse 15-3? Three, three, what does it say? You are already clean because of the word which who spoke it, which I have spoken. So here's the idea. We don't. It's like washing a kid when they're taking a bath. Believe me, they don't contribute anything to that bath in terms of getting clean. Am I right, Andrew? You do the washing. You do the cleansing. And the Father has done that. Now, this is really important. Why are we we saved? We're not saved because we keep confessing sins. That's works religion. We keep confessing sin because we are permanently and forever cleansed by the word of the gospel. Are you with me? Now, why is this important? Because who else was in the room and got their feet washed that night? Judas. So you see, if simply Judas, you know, if if, if, for, if us forgiving, uh, confessing our sins on a regular basis earned salvation, then Judas would be saved. But no, you're not saved by what you do. You're saved by what God has already done for you in Christ. All right, last one. We've gone from the courtroom to the palace slash temple to upper room fellowship. Now we're in the personal, most personal, most intimate place, the home of a father and son. And number four, Jesus, the storyteller, illustrated confession, forgiveness, and cleansing to his disciples in the parable of the prodigal son. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 15. Let's look at Luke 15. Now, I hope you're getting the idea. All these aspects, we just keep seeing these aspects, okay? And so now we're going to the famous passage of the prodigal son. Let's look at verses 11 through 24. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose, debauched living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he he sent him into his fields to feed swine, which for a Jewish person was the lowest of the lowest of the low. You couldn't get any lower. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, the, the, the pig food. And no one was giving anything to him. Now here's the transition. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. You see, he's he's right here in this area. He's, he's, he's moving into the agreement, the admitting, and the accepting. And it's all happened. He's talking to himself because confession and repentance and conviction begins in the heart okay so he says this I'm no longer uh, or I, I will go in him I've sinned in heaven and in your sight verse 19 I am no longer worthy to be called your son boy he's owning it make me as one of your hired men he's broken he's contrite he's humbled so he got up and came to his father there's the key. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned. Now notice, he will repeat word for word what he had already rehearsed in his heart. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can continue with his confession, but the father said to his slaves, quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now, again, all I'm showing this to you is it's a picture of the aspects of confession that I think are as valid for an unbeliever in getting saved as they are for a believer who is already forgiven. So let's look at these five stages to confessing sin. The first is the returning stage. The returning stage. Run to the Father with a humble and broken heart. He, see, he had, he had to go back. It's the whole thing. If God seems distant to you, who is moved? So who needs to return? We do. Now, he physically had to, but it's a picture of what? I have turned from you and I have dabbled in my sin. Now I need to return to you in the brokenness of confession. I will get up and I will go to my father. So he got up and he came to his father. Beautiful, isn't it? The returning stage. Number two, the repenting stage. This is the repenting stage, where you turn from your sin by forsaking it, owning it, and being willing to make restitution if necessary. Now, repentance is all over this passage. Look at verse 7. Repentance is mentioned twice in verse 7. It's mentioned again in verse 10. In verses 17 through 20, it's not mentioned, but it's carried out. It's carried out repentance is saying look i've sinned against you what i did was wrong and i'm coming back to make it right and his desire to make it right is as a son i spat upon your honor by my actions so now i'm willing to merely be a servant and no longer counted as your son right that's repentance you know, so, in other words, he's not coming home to deal with the Father. Hey, I know I'll pay you back. I know, you know. He's not coming home to say, hey, you got to understand, circumstances were such that I thought you were being too hard on me. And so he's not blame shifting, he's repenting. He's repenting. And so he says to the Father in verse 21 Father, I have sinned. No blaming. No evading, no excusing. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Was he exaggerating? No. He was exactly, exactly right. That's that's the repentance stage. Third the requesting stage the requesting stage ask for forgiveness by confessing your sin verbally acknowledging your guilt and responsibility for the wrong on your heart now this is a bu- this requesting stage there is so much we could learn from it first of all i want you to see he rehearsed it in his heart why because words are meaningless unless they come from the heart As we get in, in the weeks ahead, on how to ask and give forgiveness, the hardest thing for us as as believers is to believe the words of someone who's hurt us, right? Mm -hmm. Someone who says, look, I was wrong. And we immediately think, but you don't look like you think you were wrong. Mm -hmm. You're not crying like I think you ought to be crying. You know, in other words, we're judging the what? The words by the heart. The only problem is we don't have heart x-ray machines like the father does. So is the heart important? Yeah, all I want you to see is the heart important. He rehearses it in the heart, and then when it comes time to do it in front of others, he does it just as he did. There's no difference, right? He used the exact same words. You see, he believed it in his heart before he confessed it with his mouth. First, he said it in his heart to God. Then he said it with his mouth to others. That's the requesting stage. Number four, the receiving stage. The receiving stage. Now, this is where it starts getting really good. Receive the free gift of forgiveness from your heavenly Father by trusting His character, His promises, and His provision in the person of Christ. The prodigal son... Had a gift he didn't deserve and could never work for. See, he he had he came, and and rightly so. He came with a servant mindset saying, Look, I'm not worthy. I owe you, I need to work this off. And how did the father treat him? As what he really was. He treated him as a son. And he doesn't even address him as a servant. He immediately addresses the real servants and says, Look, Clothe this son of mine with the robe of a worthy son. Give him the ring of inheritance. Give him the reward. Give him all that he doesn't deserve. And that's where real pride is challenged, right? Because you're like, I'm broken. I'm undeserving. I'm unworthy. I've confessed it. And our Father already has seen our heart, has already forgiven us in Christ, But he does want us to come to him and say it. And he breaks in, the father breaks in and says, look, you don't even need to go through the whole spiel. You're forgiven. Why? Because it's not based on your confession. You need to do it. But the son's confession made it possible for the son to receive what was already in the father's heart. Isn't that cool? That's the key. Number five, the rejoicing stage. Man, when you read these parables, because it you know it begins with the lost coin, and then the lost sheep, and then the lost son. But every story, when the lost is found, what happens? It's party time. It's what KU didn't get to do. I just want to throw that out, Pastor Bruce. Just want to throw that out. But Bruce, you have something better, right? We have heavenly parties. Because every time we come to him... He forgives us, and then we, this is the reaffirming stage, affirming stage. Rejoice, I've been forgiven. Now, let me say, the reason I called these stages is because they're not steps you do. Are you with me? These aren't steps that you mark off. So you're, you're saying, wow, do I have to remember all this? No, 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 no. We're breaking down the spiritual work that happens in your heart. But why do I say they're stages? Because you have to go through a process to come to repentance. You have to go to a process where you're ready to request forgiveness, whether it's from God or if it's from others. You have to go through a process where you actually accept what Christ has already given you. You have to go through a process where your your joy in being forgiven is greater than your brokenness of your sin. So please don't. I'm not giving you mechanical steps. I'm just showing you the breakdown of a spiritual process. And I I just take great comfort in David, who was a man after God's own heart. But it took him a year to go through these stages. It took him a year to demonstrate. But here's the deal. By God's grace... He did it, and any of us can do it if we'll just come to God and receive. Isn't that beautiful? Now, here's the good news, and we end on this. Receiving forgiveness after forgiveness through confession of your sins is the blessing that will set you free to be forgiving toward others. I really believe that more Christians are not forgiving because more Christians are not confessing their own sins. When you come before God and are broken, that enables you to give greater grace to others. Amen? And here's what I like about this. God doesn't expect us to keep confessing the same sins over and over. What He wants us to do is keep rejoicing that that one sin that we confessed is forgiven again and again and again. Amen? I hope some of you are set free today. I think some of us need to begin to practice this spiritual discipline. I think some of us need to settle in on this affirming stage and let the past be the past and move on in serving the Lord. Amen? Man, this is just good stuff. It's challenging to me, and I'm growing in it, and I want all of us to grow in it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Wow, Father, you're, man without your, your divine wisdom and your word, the Bible, we'd be clueless. We, we'd be left to psychobabble. We'd be left to our own foolishness. We'd be given each other advice that would be deadly. There's a way that seems right to man, but it leads to destruction. Lord, your word sets us free, and it reveals your heart. Lord, I pray for the rest of this series now, We start implementing this in the lives of other people and in our own lives. I pray, Lord, though, that we will grow in this discipline of receiving the forgiveness, the blood-bought, promised, secured forgiveness that is ours through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go forth and be cleansed.